This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today is my other co-host, Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion today is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views are guests of their own, not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Professor, a lot of uh, bullishness in the markets. They keep staying robust. Uh, we yeah. keep going higher. Um, yeah. How are, how are you feeling? Well, I'll tell you what made me feel a lot better this week, and that was those jobless claims that we got yesterday. I was, as you know, worried about them, um, uh, but they fell back considerably. Uh, it, it, in retrospect, people are still totally scratching their heads about the retail sales data that came out of the Department of Commerce for the month of December. It just doesn't square with anything <laughs> else that's going on. Um, and I think with the jobless claims down, now there is, you know, there are some weaknesses here and there, and we are in a quarter where I think we're under 2% this first quarter, but nothing like a, a recession uh, that's, uh, that's going on. Um, it, the market is, is inching up, but I think it's going to have trouble. The S&P, um, you know, has, has it reached uh, 2,800, it's at 2,790 right now. Um, that's quite a resistance level. It's about five percent below its all-time high, but a, a, you know, quite a few times that that uh, that that particular juncture is going to be hard, I think, uh, to crack. Now, what could crack it? A trade deal. Um, as I said, I still think ninety percent probability of a trade deal is built in, but we're going to get a five percent pop on that trade deal, and that'll send it maybe to a new all-time high. But Earnings are still going to be very sluggish this uh, year. I'm still looking for low single-digit uh, growth in earnings. Um, w- uh, and uh, what I think will keep the stock market at least supported is the fact that uh, you look at interest rates on the long bond, the 10 years at 263. Well, you know, I mean, there's no competition from fixed income. Fed is not going up. Uh, so that isn't going to be competition anymore. So a tilt upward. Um, you know, maybe 5%, 6% more on the year. I don't consider this to be a real strong year, but I don't consider it to be a bear market year either. It's really all about uh, sort of the risk factors. It's really about earnings and really, and and if, if for some reason, you know, we know Trump and China are negotiating, but, yeah. and we think they're maybe mostly priced in that they're going to come to a deal. So that, if I that think, turns oh, yeah. south. I think it mostly, I mean, uh, you know, uh, as we pointed out, you know, all, all in the last few months on this program, 
Uh, now with the Fed uh, normalized and neutralized as a negative factor, uh, the performance of the stock market is uh, on Trump. Uh, he needs a trade deal. He can't blame it on Powell. He can't blame it on anyone else. So, uh, and, you know, the stock market being healthy, the economy being healthy into 2020 uh, is a prime motivation. Um, you know, I mean, he, he'll, he'll call it a victory even if he doesn't get everything he wants. Um, he'll get some of it, but I cannot see him putting on those tariffs because at this particular time, 25% tariffs on a wide range, you will see an immediate 10% break in the market, I think, and uh, going down maybe to another 20% and then officially entering a bear market. And that's something that, uh, you know, I cannot see Trump doing. So he'll, he'll pull victory out of the jaws of defeat no matter what comes up. There may be a delay, likely the March 1st deadline, but, um, uh, you know, big ramping up of tariffs at least in my mind, uh, is not something in the cards. Now, some of the discussion we've seen, I think you see more of the Fed speakers coming out, and, and certainly you're, you're talking about them being paused. One of the other discussions is their balance sheet, where it, which seemed to be sort of in preset motion, but there seems to be more conversations about them pausing the balance sheet yeah, towards at, the at end of the year. Is, how yeah, do you think that and, impacts and actually, things? Actually, Powell gave that you know indication, uh, surprise indication, in the January meeting. Most of us didn't expect it until March or maybe the May meeting. Uh, and, and basically, they're going to keep a lot more reserves in. Um, the runoff is going to stop. Uh, uh, you know, you read through what basically they're going to do is, uh, you know, basically, I think no more treasuries are going to be sold. I think the uh, it's going to move down just by the uh, paybacks of the mortgage-backed securities, which they will not reinvest in mortgage-backed. Um, and they're just going to let the liabilities, which are the Federal Reserve notes, come up and then uh, uh, test that limit at the end. So really no more, uh, you know, significant, no more tightening really on the Treasury front, which is great news. Again, a runoff of those mortgage backs. They want to get back to a pure Treasury portfolio. That is their goal. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they basically are going to stop the, the runoff by the end of the year. I, you know, I never thought that those tightenings were all that worrisome, but I know the market did. It is, it got relaxed certainly in January when he pointed out uh, that, uh, you know, they were, they had shifted their thinking uh, on that score. That's good news. There's no question uh, about that. Any other thoughts globally? So, I mean, it's not just the U.S. that's that's coming up. I look at the sort of China A-share market as one of the hot markets on the year and partly on the same China, you know, deal coming together or just whatever didn't work in the yeah. f- last I mean, year is coming back. Yeah, I Composite, we're seeing a rally like I haven't seen for a long time. I think that's also, you know, on expectation of a trade deal. Uh, you know, we pointed out that the emerging markets are doing well, even, you know, uh, uh, the tilt is upward on emerging markets because the valuations are just so persuasive. And with the Fed not going up on the interest rates, all that dollar debt now isn't uh, under anywhere near as much threat as it was before. You see relief on those on those fronts. So, uh, you know, I, I still think there are great values out there. We're beginning to see, I mean, a really great, val- great rally from the end of last year. Europe is still very slow. Germany I mean, uh, they're just barely above that zero growth. Brexit hangs over Europe. I don't think it's a major factor for us here in the United States, but, uh, you know, something that, uh, you know, they're going to have to navigate uh, and the U.K. uh, there. I'm going to be there actually twice, once in May, once in June. Wharton uh, Global Alumni Meeting is there, and I'm going to try to take the pulse of what 
is going on, although the March date, as you know, March 27th is the Brexit date. That may be delayed. There is talk that that will be delayed three months. Um, uh, we'll see what happens there. Very good. Any uh, any other closing thoughts? No, I, I think, uh, as I said, uh, uh, you know, we're waiting for – uh, the labor market report that comes out uh, on uh, uh, very early March and also February 28th, by the way, next week and next Friday, I believe it is that we're going to finally get the fourth quarter GDP report, which, as I mentioned to you, I, it's going to be over 2%, and that over 2% puts the year over 3 and that is the highest GDP growth in 13 years, something uh, for Trump to crow about, uh, even though this year is certainly starting out on a slower pace. Very good. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. So certainly. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so I'd like to introduce our first guest. He is one of our, our friends of Behind the Markets, uh, return guest, Bill Stone. Uh, Bill, welcome back to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so in this time, you're not live in the studio from, from downtown Philadelphia. You've got a new gig as, as Chief Investment Officer, Avalon Advisors. Tell us about Avalon and uh, and your firm. Thanks. Yeah, we're a, uh, I guess you'd call us a large uh Registered investment advisor out of uh, Houston, Texas. So we manage roughly uh, eight and a half billion, uh, depending on the day. But um, you know, and actually, the interesting part about I think the firm and why I, you know, one of the many reasons why I decided to come here uh, was that we actually do manage uh, individual stocks and bonds in house, um, but also use some outside. Uh, products, ETFs, et cetera, but um, you know, it was a good combination and uh, working with you know, primarily, I would say, ultra-high net worth individuals uh, and some, some uh, you know, charities and, and endowments as well. So you're, you're based down now in, in Texas. Um, you got a, your hands on the, the oil pulse. Is what's, what's the sentiment <laughs> down in Texas? Yeah, well, I think I think you have to say the sentiment in Texas is always pretty positive on uh, you know certainly this area on oil. Although I will say, as you asked, is uh, you know we we've actually warmed a lot to the energy sector here. Um, I would say we're we're pretty, uh, uh, and it's not the case always here. So we we uh, try not to fall into just because we're in Texas owning a lot of energy. Um, but we like energy at the moment anyway in terms of energy stocks uh, i'll say being more specific you know we like more the integrated oils i'll you know i'll call it the higher quality stuff we we're avoiding for the most part really the exploration and production guys i think the interesting story i think the un maybe i don't know it's appreciated enough story is how the integrated oils have changed their business um and i'm obviously i'm generalizing but i think it's a fair statement um, at least the ones we like, to really be able to deal with lower oil prices. They can earn more money than they did even before with higher oil prices. So I think uh, it is an a interesting part to, to watch. And obviously energy is, had gotten crushed. Uh, it's having a good run here year to date, but it hasn't even made up what it lost last year anyway. No, I, I actually look at that. Uh, so at some point last year, I'm not sure if it's still true. If I if I looked at it, pulled it up today. I think the sector with the absolute worst returns over the last ten years, you know, and I thought it might have been financials, you know, when I was looking it up, but it was actually energy had even worse returns than financials. So it's at the bottom of those sort of prior past returns. So if there's mean reversion, it, maybe that's uh, another extra signal. Yeah, I think hopefully, you know, I think it's been historically lately anyway where, you know, value managers go to die. But um, but I do think that's changing. Like I said, I think finally, uh, and I'm, I'll probably only stick to that on the on most of the integrated, I think you still have to be real careful with the 
uh, exploration and production. And again, I'm generalizing, but uh, they're probably still probably throwing some good money after bad in some cases. So you have to be real careful about that. And, and I mean, one of the big questions, and maybe as, as since you get the local pulse, we'll keep we'll keep following up with you later. Is you know what's the break even for a lot of these U.S. companies? You know, they, they, there's all this, you know, the U.S. becoming this major production source and there was the question on with when the prices were dropping how would they keep pumping you know would they keep going what was their break even you got a sense on just the supply that comes um sort of with the fracking and how much quicker they can turn it on well i think the hard part is is that you know uh without naming names the you know some of these smaller emps you know they they're in a sense at the moment still between a rock and a hard place because you know, they've got debt, so they've almost got to drill holes, even though they probably shouldn't, um, because the pricing doesn't necessarily still work for them. Uh, obviously, it matters how much they can get out of the holes. You know, there's a lot of variables, um, but I think that's why, I'd say, as a generalization, we're avoiding those, particularly the small EMPs, and, and really focusing on the integrateds, where, like I said, they're they're actually making better money than they made before hmm. when oil was much higher. So. You know, if, if, if oil skyrockets, this whole call will be wrong in sense of relative returns. The ENP stuff will do way better. But I think in terms of risk-reward, you're still better off, you know, being in the ones that you know are still going to be around, even if, you know, oil craters again or something like that. I mean, we still think we're net, you know, positive on oil prices. Don't necessarily think it runs away because, again, you've got this issue with domestic supply here can come online if it needs to fill up the hole. Although at the end of the day, I, I think we'd still say, um, you know, demand outstrips supply. So still, I say net positive on oil prices as well. Very good. How, how do you sort of stepping back from uh, sort of this micro focus here? Like what any, how do you look at the, what's your worldview when you sort of looking at uh, from, from your perch, how, how do you looking at global markets, U.S. generally? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I was interested in uh, you know Dr. Siegel's comments, but um, I think very a lot very similarly in the sense of you know I think in one sense I, I took a look at you know how since World War II you know how markets have rebounded off of you know essentially let's call it roughly either twenty percent lows or whatever bear market lows they hit. Um, according to that data, we're a bit I'll say ahead of schedule so far, so we're at roughly the 60-day mark here, 59 days, 60 days today uh, off the bottom. Um, and we're at, you know, let's call it 18% up. Uh, on the kind of average, it's about uh, 15%. Um, and a lot of that is actually driven high, higher by the really ugly bear markets, which te- tend to obviously have uh, a much stronger bounce off the bottom. So if you kind of go to the the ugly bear markets that recessions were involved off the bottom, you're talking more like 17%, which is more in the area of where we are now. So, I mean, I'm kind of in the thing that we may be a little bit ahead of ourselves. Um, You know, we were right, at least in the sense of saying, well, it was probably a really good, obviously it turned out to be a good opportunity at the end of the year. Um, But I think as you were talking about earlier, probably a good amount of the well, I'm going to knock on wood. Trade deal with China is getting priced in. You know, certainly people are being more optimistic. That's a good news, but it also obviously higher expectations means higher risk. That if it doesn't go through, you you get some sort of significant pullback. I think it goes through, but um, you know, so I'm in agreement there. I think on the international side, um, you know, certainly the economies don't look good. I mean, you look at Germany, et cetera. I guess our thought is maybe you 
start to get a bounce out of those economies, and maybe that's why, as you're talking about, their their markets haven't done badly, right? I mean, it's um, maybe that was, and it probably was priced in because they were a lot cheaper than the U.S. Um, so hopefully, we'll get some sort of a a decent uh, economic bounce as well uh, from from the various uh, international markets. You know, as you mentioned, you know, China certainly has it turned around on the economic side, um, but their stocks are certainly reflecting some bit of that probably. And maybe that's because we are seeing China stimulate quite a bit. Lee Chen, I know uh, when we ever talk China, I got to bring you into the conversation. <laughs> How's how, what's your what's your thoughts on what's going on in China? I think. Um I think it, uh, we've been talking that you know both China and the U.S. both politics, you know, will suggest some kind of deal. Uh, I think in the U.S., President Trump is very focused on the stock market. In China, I think the one thing that the the top uh, um, the the top politics uh, political uh, goal is jobs. So uh, in two thousand eight, you know, the thing that scares. The party and every government official is if somebody gets un- unemployed. Because if you look at Chinese history, the the fear is that unemployment will you know will leads to people who has nothing to do but starting a revolution. So I think it, you know if the economy going down, the gov- the government has the ultimate number one um, you know motivation to get it going again. On the other hand, um, the bounce back. Um, I mean, over the long run, I'm always, you know, bullish on China. Uh, but I think in the short run, I wouldn't take uh, too much on the January, you know, February uh, uh, num- numbers, both in the market and any economy, mainly because it's the holiday spread in China. So the Chinese New Year runs from February 5th to the 25th that, you know, there's a, on the February uh, it's the first full moon, which is also a holiday. It's a, it's almost like the the Asian Valentine's Day uh, mm. in China. So everybody is in a very good spirit uh, to spend. But you know, I I usually like to look at like March and April data just to get a feel. Particularly in March, when the People's Congress they're going to meet. You know, the the political and uh, budget gets set. Uh, the you know the national budget. So I think that's where I kind of you know feel get a better feel over then. Very interesting. So so Bill, how when you when when Avalon looks at building portfolios, mentioned you do a lot of your own stock and bond picking. How how do you guys um, uh, when you're when you're constructing portfolios from the top down? Is there you mentioned energy being a, an area you like? Is there any other s- places uh, that you're you're sort of tilting portfolios? Yeah, I mean, I think we still would say we we still like the consumer. Um, so, you know, I, I knew I heard I was really interested. You know, Dr. Siegel talked about the retail sales number. Um, you know, we spend a fair amount of time looking at that and are just really, I guess, I'll, as confident as you can be about the stuff that that was just either it was an outlier or it's just going to get revised away anyway. Uh, and then the consumer is going to, or, you know, we certainly expect the consumer to remain strong. So I think that's a decent or a good place to continue to look. Um, you know, and there's various reasons. You know, if you look at the Red Book numbers, you look at, I mean, I, I pointed out even um, Walmart, right? I mean, they're huge, and they didn't see any of that same kind of problem. doesn't mean it wasn't there, but I still think that's good. And then even, you know, when you go to the economic numbers and you go to household debt service, things like that that are at, you know, some of the best number, actually in that case, the best numbers we've ever seen, um, 
and the job numbers, uh, all that comes together to say it, it still seems like we're good to go on the consumer. I mean, is uh, it? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, hi, this is Li Chen. I, I just do have a question. I think in the housing sector, there's, you know, definitely talk about some kinds of softening. Uh, how would you, like, uh, you know, link that to, to your view on consumers? Yeah, and I think, I guess I'll, I'll separate housing out and say, you know, part of that, let's say the some of it's the, the tax side of the equation, because I think a lot of the weakness is also centered in, say, California, et cetera, um, the different states with the high state tax that they can't, you know, the salt that they can't write off anymore or can't write off all of it anymore uh, relative to their federal taxes. So I think that has something to do with it. And, I, you know, I wonder if some of it's also that generational shift that you're just not seeing um, quite as much of, uh, you know, a run to home ownership. So the good news is housing is not, you know, not a huge part of our economy. Uh, obviously, it's good in terms of the ancillary parts of it, but um, in terms of directly anyway. So I guess I, I don't worry too much, and I think it's holding in okay, you know, um, certainly not setting the world on fire, that's for sure. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. I'm Jeremy Schwartz with my co-host Lee Chen Ren. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM Channel 132. Our guest we're speaking with is Bill Stone, Chief Investment Officer at Avalon Advisors, looking at his outlook for the economy and the markets. Uh, Bill, sort of interesting on the consumer, uh, there's sort of even divergences among consumer stocks. I mean, one of the top headlines the last few weeks, you have uh, Mr. Warren Buffett's favorite consumer stocks, Coca-Cola, Kraft Heinz, uh, been under some pressure. What Any thoughts on within consumer? I mean, you've got those big consumer brand name companies versus um, more maybe cyclical consumers. What, what, where, are you, where are you thinking about that? Yeah, and I think, you know, as you know, the, the I guess you say the brand names, and I guess I don't worry quite as much. Well, maybe I should, but uh, um, maybe it's my own bias on, on Coke anyway, because um, actually I thought their numbers didn't look too bad. Um, well, certainly the numbers were too bad, but even their forecast I wasn't quite as worried about. Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to dig as much into the craft. We don't really own it, so I didn't spend any real time on it. Um, but I do think, like everything else, uh, is you know, one is obviously accounting for. I think some people would say on craft it was a so far a change in consumer taste, right, and moving away from some of those known brands that we've had. Although I can't imagine anyone not liking liking ketchup. But anyway. Um, I think the other side is obviously avoiding the spots where Amazon can disrupt you uh, and take you out. So, you know, I know that's probably not a super insightful in the sense of, you know, that's probably what a lot of people are thinking, but that certainly, you know, leads you to places, uh, you know, like the the home improvement retailers, things like that, where you can, you, you probably still have this ability to, uh, to avoid Amazon undercutting you like crazy or, you know, any other kind of online or also certainly retailers that play both sides of it right that have a good online presence in the stores and um between the u.s and international markets any any tilts on do you, do you guys make overweights underweights there in terms of how you, you're positioned globally so probably more in the sense of within international so i'd say uh our international managers in general run developed and emerging together. We don't really separate the two, you know, explicitly they can move between the two. And I would say that what we have picked up, you know, we, we well, it was a little bit early, probably uh, at, to the tail end of last year, but we've certainly increased our, um, our uh, emerging market exposure. Uh, and in particular, actually, interestingly enough, uh, added to uh, quite a bit to Vietnam. 
Hmm. Our thought was it was a beneficiary uh, thinking that the trade deal would go through with the U.S. Uh, it was really uh, another kind of secondary or whatever beneficiary uh, of that deal actually happening. I, uh, I was just in Asia earlier this year and did a quick weekend stopover in Vietnam. It was uh, an interesting weekend for sure. I have not made it there yet. <laughs> it, it is definitely an experience. And the uh, the traffic patterns alone, just trying to cross the street with basically there's very few traffic lights. And uh, you get this this wall, wall of motorcycles trying to – scooters coming by you and, and navigating the first time is very frightening. And then you just learn how to just walk across the street with no fear. Actually, if you ask me to pick a country aside from China and East Asia, I will pick uh, Vietnam as well. Even though I haven't made it there either. But I think they, if you look at the political side, um, they have really also really stressed on economic development. And that they have been a little bit ahead of China in the political reform to setting themselves up as, you know, the up, up and coming in East Asia. I will say we went to the, the sort of one of the bigger markets that everybody goes goes to there and it was one of the real you know we, we if I if I could bring a sales offsite there it's probably the most effective salespeople I've ever seen in terms of how they can influence <laughs> you and all their practices I mean they were really top notch I got to say yeah yeah now actually Bill I don't know um the time I do want to have a question you you had a lot of experience in terms of factors and in the uh, multi asset uh, classification there has been a lot of discussion on lowvo is that uh overpriced sec- uh, you know factor or not um just wonder what's your view on these factors uh, going you know forward all right. Well, I don't know if someone prepped you ahead of time, but I'm going to wade into my a controversial view. I, I am. <laughs> no, I, am, I was independent. <laughs> I didn't talk with Jeremy ahead. <laughs> I've got a horse in that race. <laughs> I generally dislike Lovao um, as a, as a factor strategy. I mean, um, my problem with it is just because if I'm trying to do a portfolio construction, and you point out well one part of it, which is. It matters how you construct it, but also, you know, it can swing or be heavily weighted in specific sectors. So, you know, you can end up being piled up into those. But my problem is also it it then rotates through at times the various other factors I'm getting exposed to, right? So, you know, let's just say my value stocks at that moment happen to be, you know, low vol. So now I've kind of piled up in both of those. So I I honestly strip low low vol out. Uh, and allocate to the other factors that I like, um, you know, in terms of just kind of, I'll argue the standard ones of, you know, value and uh, momentum, et cetera. My, my, my horse in that race says, uh, I actually, we, we've been publishing a little bit on this and saying, um, you know, I think when I look at the valuations across low vol, it, it certainly, and this was true in the fourth quarter, there's been a lot of money going into it. Now, questions, can factors get expensive? And I know, Lee Chen, you're working on sort of all sorts of factor timing type of type of work. The the valuations, I think, on the baskets, tend, they tend to be lower, I think, lower growth today, lower quality even, and higher multiple stocks. And so, you know, to, to me, they're a bit more expensive. And I, I don't know that there are companies worthy of that that sort of valuation. Um, but be, certainly everybody wants a little ball. So as a, as a concept, it, it seems to be where people are going. I'm going to fight the power. That's <laughs> <what> <laughs> any other, when, when you're thinking about a, a factory portfolio, any other things that, that you look at as something that is more attractive today? 
Well, I mean, it's, it's been working this year, but I, I, you know, I guess because I'm, you know, I like to hit my head against the wall is, uh, you know, value. I mean, and deep down, I'm a value guy, so maybe that's why I go back there. But value's obviously had a tougher time of things. But uh, I mean, honestly, I believe in. You know, it makes more sense to to allocate, you know, across the really, you know, the factors and and uh, and get the full exposure. I'm. I'll be interested to see your uh, your research on timing. So uh, I have not had much success there. So I kind of try and set the allocations and and rebalance them along the way. Uh, but uh, but I'm always open to to uh, to getting better. No, this Lee Chan thinks you can do it. I think uh, I think the it's really a matter of expectation. Uh, the amount of you know add value add from factor timing is nowhere close from those factors. But you know, you there. I I do believe there's a little bit juice you can squeeze from there. We'll see. As she gets more work done, we'll be be of course to share. Um, when you think about value, is you know certainly different. Everybody has their own definitions of value that they like. Uh, you know the traditional value stocks. You know the sort of the price to book, Fama French DFA type mentality has been certainly under pressure. It's been one of the worst decades for price to book. You know, in the sort of seventy, eighty years of that kind of study. Do you guys have a, a preferred way of looking at value from from the others? Um, I guess I'll say I've I have you know because you're right. I mean I, I grew up in the classical you know price to book and some others, but I, I've I've kind of come around to maybe that's not as effective anymore because. You know, so many of our companies are so much more asset light. I'm not clear that, you know, that a lot of those work quite as well. Um, so what I've been working on or, you know, we've, we've been doing some work here on is uh, essentially, you know, operating earnings uh, versus enterprise value. So also, you know, that obviously deals with the, with the leverage within the company as well, which I think is important. Um, so, you know, that's no secret in looking at it that way, but, uh, you know, perhaps mis- mixing that with some other ones as well. But I think that to me is a, is, is probably a better going forward rather than like say a, uh, price to book as much as I, you know, it's nice cause you have all that past data on price to book. I'm just not clear that we haven't, you know, I hate to say it's different this time, but I'm not sure it's as helpful. I think we all agree. I totally agree. I don't know whether Jeremy, but uh, yeah, we. Are, I think we completely agree with you on this point. Yep. Um, we haven't really talked about bonds. Our, our second guest uh, is going to be be focused really on the high yield market. Uh, but any before we we sort of say goodbye, any any sort of thoughts uh, outside of equities? What you're looking at across the bond market and, and position portfolios? Yeah, I mean, so we. I guess it's you know we we maybe kick ourselves we didn't get quite as aggressive as we should have in the in the fourth quarter on buying some high yield we have a you know we had we had, i guess done a decent job of bringing in our high yield exposure here before it really really got clobbered um but i honestly couldn't move quick enough to uh i think we thought we might have more time to be honest to 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 grab some more uh credit and now the spreads have come in so much this year um that it's hard to get honestly too excited about it i mean yeah we're picking specific names and trying to get things but in terms of a you know a big allocation or moving sizably i gotta be honest you kind of missed the boat on that one yeah and uh if you listen to the the second half of our our show here i think just teasing out we're gonna be talking with marty fritzen who is not gonna be all that bullish on high yield spread so he's probably not gonna tell you to go now um but uh we're gonna we're gonna be thanks for always a pleasure to catch up bill thanks for for coming on today thank you thanks for having me on 
I'm Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and you are listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. Our show airs live every Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on Sirius XM Channel 132. Welcome, Martin Fridson, to the program. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Lehman Living Fridson Advisors and the editor and publisher of the Income Securities Investor Newsletter. He does a lot of great work uh, on the credit space, investment strategies there, high yield uh, through, through, through their firm. Martin, welcome back to our program. Oh, great to be here. Um, so I know whenever I think about the high yield space and what's going on, you're sort of my first thought, uh, who to call. And it's it, it's interesting, you know, last year there was definitely a big sell-off in all sorts of the credit space from from leveraged loans, high yield bonds. And now this year it's been robust, at least in the high yield space. Uh, I'm curious to, to check your pulse. How do you think where we are, given the big rally snapback in, in sort of high yield spreads and, and the, the bonds this year, how do you feel about the high yield space? Well, it's very expensive right now. Uh, if the economy holds up, uh, you should should be okay uh, for a while. But uh, you have to realize that uh, you're not you're not getting great value right now. And and how do you? I mean, do you have a number of different ways of of looking at that? Like, what's what's your preferred method of of, of looking at valuations and and where we are? Well, the number one. Uh, approach I follow is a uh, model of the risk premium. That's the uh, yield spread that you get over and above default risk-free treasuries for taking the default risk and the relative illiquidity risk of uh, speculative-grade bonds. And I do that based on the ICE B of A Merrill Lynch U.S. High Yield Index. Uh, As of last night's close, you had an option-adjusted spread I don't want to get overly technical about it, but uh, it does take into account the uh, uh, option for early redemption on these issues. And the option-adjusted spread as of last night's close was 404 basis points. Our fair value estimate as of uh, the end of the month was 646 basis points, and uh, that's a gap of 242. That's almost two full standard deviations. Uh, I mean, uh, one standard deviation constitutes a uh, an extreme overvaluation in uh, our methodology. So uh, you're at a, 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 a pretty uh, pretty expensive level right now because of that uh, rebound in confidence. And uh, also, uh, to keep in mind, for the last three years, the outstanding supply of high-yield bonds has been decreasing which is kind of an unusual thing in the capital markets, which tend to grow over time. Uh, but you, there's actually less, so there's some supply, uh, pressure between the supply and demand for this paper. Yeah, that's a two-standard reaction event. Like how, how often, when you think about where, where, where you see the spreads in the last few decades, like when, what are some of the other times you got to that, that level of, of, of overvaluation? Well, the, uh, in the early stages of the downturn in the um, uh, you know going into the great recession it took a while um, you know interestingly uh, if you look at the uh, consensus or forecast for probability of recession within 12 months in April 2008 uh, the the sort of median forecast of the economists surveyed by Bloomberg was only 70% probability of recession in, within one year. And, of course, by that time, as it turned out later, the economy had already been in recession for four months. 
So I think the financial markets were a bit slow to pick up on some of those signs of deterioration going into the recession. But it's, it's, it is a pretty uh, extreme and unusual event. There have not been uh, very many instances of this wide a disparity. Hmm. And and so is it just the is there anything unique about the period now where you say, well, the be given the the global yield environment where European yields are in negative territory, Japanese yields in negative territory, like that that that's the flood of money coming to the U.S. Is that is that one of the the major factors? Just just the whole global environment and. Uh, it's maybe not just U.S. Treasury yield spreads that are the driving force here? Yeah, there's uh, clearly a demand for yield uh, all around the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know with, with the yields as low as they are and, and at negative levels in uh, much of the developed world, people are uh, just stretching for yield where they can. And... Um, the, uh, the some of the traditional instruments, uh, investment grade corporate debt or even treasuries, are just not offering that uh, the kind of yield that they used to. So, you, you know, it's definitely we're it, we're definitely part of a global system. Um, but uh, within the U.S., you wouldn't have spreads as narrow as they are if there weren't uh, some level of confidence about the outlook. And at this point, I think, as you see, reflected in the rebound in stocks as well, and uh, as a reaction particularly to the Fed's uh, sort of backing off on what seemed to be a policy of being dead set to raise short-term rates, uh, with that really out of the picture by now, and even talk of slowing down the uh, unwinding of the quantitative easing, uh, that uh, that has given a new boost of confidence to the markets and uh, you know, reduce that risk of uh, or fear of a risk of a policy mistake by the Fed that would throw the uh, U.S. into recession. Although there are some out there who uh, maintain that the Fed has already made a policy mistake by the uh, amount of uh, interest rate hikes that they uh, in, uh, did last year. Is there uh, any when you think about just where the, the the last you know with the Fed hiking rates and you, there was a big preference to sort of short term bonds, is that reflected in spreads between short term high yield, longer term high yield? Any views on on that difference between those two categories? Yeah, right now you have very unusual situation where the yield spread again that risk premium for taking the default risk is smaller. Uh, on the three to five year high yield bonds than it is on the ten to fifteen year high yield bonds that 's a very rare occurrence in history ordinarily the uh, you have a positively sloped spread curve in the high yield market, meaning that you get paid uh, a or rather i 'm sorry you usually have a negatively sloped spread curve, meaning that you get a bigger premium over treasuries in the shorter-dated instruments than you do in the longer-dated instruments. And I believe the reason for that is that uh, if you get into a situation where there's a very likely risk of default, investors are going to uh, respond to the fact that in bankruptcy, it doesn't matter matter whether you own a one-year bond or a 10-year or a 30-year bond, your claim in bankruptcy is the same. So you have to get close to where you expect 
the all the bonds to be trading in in the in the event of default, and uh, so that might be say seventy cents on the dollar with the bonds not already in default, but at high likelihood that they will be. Well, to get to a price of seventy in a bond of you know, just three to five years, you need a much higher yield, and that means a much bigger spread over the Treasury bonds for those shorter-dated bonds than you do in the longer-dated ones. This is just a function of the bond math. So the only way you can get to a positively sloped spread curve where the risk premiums are smaller on the shorter-dated high-yield bonds is to be in an environment where there's almost no concern at all about default risk. And we're kind of in that situation now. You know, these uh, few instances of positively sloped spread curves occur uh, when the overall spread versus treasuries for the high yield market is very low, and uh, it, it's certainly comparatively low by historical standards currently. So it's uh, another sign that uh, there's a lot of complacency in the market right now. Yeah. Now, one of the, the areas there's not a lot of complacency, there's a lot of discussion, um, is the triple B market. And that seems to be like the most popular topic of conversation in the press and, and a lot of the investment commentaries I follow. Is that a sign of worries? And maybe sort of for, for listeners un, uninitiated on the triple Bs, what the what the issue is, um, maybe sort of talk through to that part. Yeah, it's not an issue to be dismissed at all. Half of the investment-grade corporate bond market is now rated triple B, and that compares to a third of it a decade ago. So the 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 issue, the the outstanding debt within the investment-grade market has shifted to uh, essentially just a step above the uh, the high yield or speculative-grade category, starting from double B plus on down. So. There's a lot of concern that if you have uh, downgrading, uh, which you should have some, uh, in uh, as the economy softens and eventually goes into recession, uh, but th- that supply of the so-called fallen angels, you know, those issues starting out as investment grade but then getting downgraded to speculative grade, as that uh, universe of fallen angels increases, the fear is that it will swamp the supply overwhelm the demand for high yield bonds. Uh, Again, not something to uh, dismiss entirely, but important to put in perspective. Um, What the press uh, often creates the impression of is that the instant any bond gets downgraded from triple B minus to double B plus, all of the holders are under strict uh, rules about what they can own and they dump them. And uh, of course, uh, this creates a fire sale condition and uh, deeply depresses the uh, uh, you know the market. Well, the reality is that uh, institutional investors are uh, sophisticated enough to know that uh, that's the worst strategy. You know, just dumping them immediately under those conditions. I once called the five largest pension plan sponsors in the United States and asked them very directly on this point, and they unanimously said that. They have a policy that says, all right, if you're managing an investment-grade portfolio for us, we expect you to uh, sell those bonds that have gotten downgraded, but don't do it right away. Don't hurt uh, hurt us by uh, selling when the whole world is uh, trying to get out of them, uh, but uh, maybe over a six-month period, 
uh, work your way out of that position. Um, and and uh, another factor in this is the life insurance companies don't have to sell at all. They uh, don't have to get out of uh, bonds unless they're impaired, in other words, uh, actually failing to pay the interest or almost certain to fail to pay the interest. And if they do sell, then they have to recognize the loss, which they would not otherwise have to recognize. And, and the problem with that is that recognizing that loss reduces their statutory surplus, meaning that it reduces their ability to write additional insurance premiums. So it's it's really counterproductive unless they feel that uh, the, the uh, fallen angel, which is now gone to double B, is heading straight down and ultimately for default, and they want to get out of the way of the worst of it before that happens. Um, so there are a number of mitigating factors. Um, and as far as the uh, how it affects the high-yield market, uh, fallen angels are not by any means the first choice of high-yield bond managers in terms of bonds they want to own. The covenants on the investment-grade bonds tend to or are generally weaker, much weaker than those on the high-yield issues. And furthermore, they are relatively low-coupon and long-maturity bonds, which is not what high-yield managers like to own. They like to own bonds with high coupons, meaning that they're getting the current income rather than getting a substantial part of the return through the uh, appreciation back to par on a discount bond uh, until maturity. So the um, just bonds getting downgraded to double B won't necessarily compete all that much with the uh, more conventional high-yield bonds. So uh, the bottom line on it is that uh, the analysis I've done, looking at some historical precedents, such as the downgrade of General Motors several years back and uh, large-scale downgrading of energy companies with the fall in oil prices uh, just a few years ago. Uh, all, all other things being equal, you know, t- taking into account everything else that's going on at the same time, you probably have about uh, 50 basis point, half a percentage point further drop in uh, uh, further increase in risk premiums uh, on the uh, the high-yield market as a whole as a result of that influx of uh, fallen angel bonds, but uh, not the uh, total cataclysm that uh, maybe gets conjured up by some of the, uh, the press coverage. We're talking with Martin Fritzen, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Livian Fritzen Advisors. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, joined in the studio by Lee Chen Ren, uh, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. And, and, and Marty, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your firm, Lehman Livian Fritzen Advisors. You guys do a lot of work on income-producing securities. How are you, you know, what are the types of clients you're serving, and, and then how do you look across? You sort of mentioned high yield is not something you like. What do you like? Yeah, uh, we are a money manager for high net worth individuals. Uh, our clients are not not billionaires, but uh, people like I think probably a lot of your listeners have worked in a profession or owned a small business, saved some money, uh, did not go out and buy a house that they couldn't afford, and as they're approaching retirement or possibly retired already, uh, they're looking to generate a high level of income, uh, but while also preserving that principal value that they've built up really over their lifetimes. And that's a delicate uh, balance in the today's low interest rate environment. Uh, it does require taking some credit risk, uh, but you don't want to do that in a way that uh, in, in 
in the interest of getting those last few basis points of yield, you wound up uh, losing uh, substantial wealth uh, through uh, credit uh, credit problems and the issues that you've bought. So in addition to corporate bonds, uh, we do have some high-yield bonds in the portfolios. It's And at uh, another point in the cycle, it'll be a larger component, but it's relatively small right now because of the valuations. Uh, we also invest uh, in preferred securities. That's the biggest component of our portfolios. Um, they, they're of interest because they, uh, in many cases, are not big enough issues to be of interest to the very large money managers. You know, they can't buy enough of them to move the needle on uh, their portfolios. But um, uh, as a result, uh, there's relatively little research done on them. Some of them are fairly illiquid in the trading. So you can get uh, premium yields that, that really uh, do uh, do look like uh, good values relative to the risk in those securities. Um, we also uh, use instruments uh, with some tax advantages in them, such as uh, real estate investment trusts and master limited partnerships. And the master limited partnerships, or MLPs, are one category that uh, does look cheap to us at this point. Uh, that, that's been uh, the result of some uh, regulatory changes as well as the volatility in energy prices over the last few years. Uh, but uh, we, we do see some good values in that sector. Hey, uh, this is Li Chen. I do want to follow up um, because for your client's style, like tax management is probably one of the, you know, very big concern. And income, you know, usually treated as, a, um, you know, dividend is pay, is taxed more than our capital gains. Like how do you do, like what kind of comprehensive tax strategy that, you know, goes with, with together with the investment strategy? Well, great question, and uh, there are several aspects of that. Uh, first of all, some of our clients, of course, have both taxable and tax-deferred vehicles, such as uh, IRAs, and uh, locating the securities uh, in the proper place to maximize the advantage is key. So, for instance, now, the mass, as I mentioned, the Master Limited Partnerships um, are uh, – tax advantage because the income on them is not taxed at the corporate level. Uh, so, uh, and uh, you wind up with some of that being classified as return of capital rather than income. Uh, so uh, you get an advantageous tax rate on that. Um, the um, uh, uh, Some of the, uh, many of the preferred issues are, have qualified dividends, which are taxed at a lower rate, uh, 15 or 20 percent, as opposed to the you know, higher uh, rates on ordinary income uh, you know, for uh, non-qualified dividends. So there are a number of factors that we can bring into play, as well as using uh, municipal securities. Um, and uh, But you're absolutely right that uh, maximizing the uh, tax uh, position of the investments is a uh, a very uh, major consideration in what we do. Um, also, to follow up, you mentioned that, you know risk premium uh, on top of treasury is one variable. You look very closely to see whether high high yield is uh, high valued or not. Do you have other models that uh, try to you know gauge uh, 
this uh, for this as a class. Yeah, one other that uh, I haven't talked about yet is that uh, I c- compare the high yield markets implied e- uh, estimate of the probability of recession within 12 months with the median estimate of a group of economists that are surveyed by Bloomberg. Uh, currently, the economists put a 25% probability on recession within one year. Uh, the high yield market, uh, by my analysis, puts only a 10% probability on it. That's the biggest gap we've seen uh, between the two uh, since the Great Recession and uh, supports that view that the high yield market is just too rich. It's not to say that there will be a recession. I'm not standing here to you know, predict a recession within the next 12 months. But at any time, security should be reflecting the probabilities, the risks that are out there. And uh, it, it, it's the high-yield market is just giving too little weight to that probability, even though it's only a one in four probability, you know, three to one against, as odds makers would put it. Uh, but it still should be recognized as uh, not a zero risk. Mari, we're just out of time in our final few seconds here. Um, and you want to you want to let people know where they can follow your work and uh, if they're interested in either your publishing or or your your asset management firm. Yes, our asset management firm. You can learn more about at our website www.llfadvisors.com, and advisors is spelled with O R S. Another two spellings of that word. Uh, the um, uh, I, I published uh, some work on Forbes.com uh, from time to time, so some of my research uh, appears there uh, as well. Very good. Always a ca- pleasure catching up. Thanks for for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening Thank to you. listen to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM One Thirty Two. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have Lee Chen Ren in the studio. Thanks to our producer, sound engineer today, Danielle Bruno. Listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 